Welcome back to Match Volume, USC Annenberg's premier interview-based podcast produced by student journalists. I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm your co-host, Jeffrey. And I have to say, Jeffrey managed to bring in a very interesting guest, a guest that you might have heard being shouted out in past episodes. So, Jeffrey, do you want to talk a little bit about our guest today? Yeah, that's right. You know him. You love him. I've called him the baddest man in Annenberg for months now. But yes, I spoke with Professor Robert Shear, who I've always wanted to interview. I... I've spent like two months trying to get him into the podcast studio, and I finally got him. And Professor Shear is an, a legendary award-winning journalist and a current professor of communications at USC Annenberg. Even though the interview didn't turn exactly how I thought it would, it had a lot of very fun twists and turns. I think you'll enjoy it. Here's, Here's Robert, Robert Shear. Throughout your career, you, I think you've been very consistent on a lot of, um, a lot of different areas. And one of the things I think you've been most consistent with is great facial hair. So what's the key to a great beard? No, I'm just kidding. Okay, okay. That was just a joke question. <laughs> um, you know, I can leave. If, you know, if it's not interesting, I can leave. I just wanted it to be on record that I did ask you that. Yeah. But okay. Actually, so people usually talk about my hair itself, not my facial hair. I see. Yeah, I see. but go ahead. Yeah, so in your documentary, I think you mentioned that... It's not my documentary, by the way. The some, so, documentary someone did on you. Yeah, I did. I had done some... They have an activist archive, they call it. And they had interviewed me for their archive. They'd also interviewed me for uh, a thing they did for The Nation magazine, had a big program and honored me. And so they did it. And I thought they did a good workmanlike job. I had no editorial control over it. It's their film. Uh, there are things that I would have emphasized that they didn't. But in the main, it turned out well. I like it. And I, you know, it's honest, I think. And so there it is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I meant what I said in the movie. I don't like being the story. That's I didn't get into journalism to be the story. If I wanted to, I would have been a politician or an <laughs> actor or something. I was, I mean, right, yeah. right. But yeah, so I, you did mention um, in that documentary that they did on you that uh, during City College, you would go into the library, read about some topics, and then like debate your professors. And I can see that in your classes now, where you encourage students uh, like myself to challenge speakers and yourself. And I really wanted to know, do you, did you ever successfully persuade your professor to change their mind? Yeah, but that wasn't really my goal. You know, the fact of the matter is, if you really want to talk about the making of a journalist, or my, I mean, you, you, you bring a lot to the table, whether you admit it or not. You know, you can come from a rich, privileged, white family and you're bringing something to the table. You may think you struggle with it. You may think you get a grip on it. You play devil's advocate with your stuff, but you can't deny your experience. And then you try to turn it into an asset. You don't want to have it uh, distort everything you observe and put everybody in your framework. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, why, why deny it? It's a source of information. And uh, Lawrence Frilinghetti, the, probably the <laughs> writer, one of the writers I most respected, and I actually worked for him as a clerk in his City Lights bookstore. He once he wrote, uh, keep an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. And that means, you know, we all have background, we have experience. Now it's very fashionable in places like Annenberg to tell stories. Well, my story is interesting, and it certainly influenced me. And that's what the part, one of the parts that that movie got right. You know, I yes, I'm a white male, <laughs> and uh, I've made a pretty good living uh, through my life, you know, working, and okay, I'm not poor, 
But I did grow up in a, a very poor, uh, I wouldn't say dysfunctional family, but my father and mother were not married. My father had another family he had to support. He was a knitter mechanic in the garment industry. My mother was a mirror operator on a sewing machine, mirror machine. And uh, we had very little money. We mostly lived off my mother's money. We shared an apartment with my aunt and uncle and their two children who were older than me. And it was in the Depression. I was born in 1936, so there were meals that were inadequate. We went to bed hungry. Uh, You know, I think I say in the movie, I'm one of the few uh, in my crowd. I don't think I've ever met anybody who was food-deprived, who (laughs) just happened to be around among my friends. And, And we were. And then we, you know, and you grow up with great fears of not having a job. That's why I'm still working. I'm 86 years old. And, you know, uh, and, and so it affects you. And it gives you sympathy. I was born on welfare. My mother had to apply. You know, at one point when she got laid off, my father lost his job the day I was born. So I don't write about welfare. I don't write about immigrants. My mother was without papers. You know, she's undocumented. She couldn't apply because she was a radical who organized strikes and got arrested. So she was told by lawyers, you apply for citizenship, you're going to be deported. And she had come after the Russian Revolution, so she was a refugee from Russian communism. Uh, and so she which couldn't go back there, and she didn't, you know. I mean, so there was a lot of reality, and my mother was afraid every time there was an official letter came to the house. So when I've written about immigrants and undocumented people, there's been a lot of sympathy. But here in Los Angeles, when I was writing for the LA Times, I would go into factories. I went in with our, you know, California Labor Commissioner. I went with uh, when Robert Reich was, uh, uh, you know, in the cabinet and head of labor. I went in on raids and things, and I saw the people that were there as my mother or my father. My mother particularly, because my father did have citizenship, had come over from Germany when he was young. But, you know, these were not alien people. They might have spoken a different language. They weren't speaking German or Yiddish or Italian or, you know. uh, But, uh, you know, they they definitely informed my journalism. Now, about arguing with professors, I know it's a (laughs) long-winded answer. I, I didn't do that to be funny or anything. And I wasn't the only one. The, you know, particularly when I was in Berkeley in graduate school, it, the climate was such that we were questioning. And, and I will say uh, that we did win some of these arguments. And, you know, one of our colleagues went off to be a Don at Oxford. And, uh, you know, they were Marie Zeitlin, who I was very close to, has been a professor at UCLA and a leading sociologist. I didn't continue with that path because I had trouble with the center where I was in Chinese studies and I had my own falling out with some of the more hawkish professors at that time. But for example, the guy who was chair of my department, I thought had marked me down on a paper, gave me a B instead of an A. I was pissed off with him or ticked off, I guess I should say. And, uh, you know, um, you know, he went on to be uh, dean of Harvard and, and uh, Henry Rosofsky. And uh, we had spirited arguments about economic history and everything. And when I went to speak at Harvard at one point, when I was the editor of Ramparts, uh, the guy introducing me, Marty Perrett, said he'd just run into Dean Rosowski. Uh, and Dean Rosowski had complimented uh, him on the choice of speaker because he said I was the smartest graduate student he ever met or something like that, you know. And I was sputtering when I got to the microphone. I said, oh, smart, smart. They took away my fellowship. You know, so... 
Yeah, I, I think I had a good, and then I interviewed him for stories, Henry Rosowski, Dean, uh, did one on Zbigniew Brzezinski for the LA Times, I interviewed him, we got along very well. Did I influence him? No, but I, I respected him, he respected, you know, you, you can disagree, and this is what I like about teaching here at Annenberg, I encourage people to challenge me, uh, as long as it's not a barroom conversation, like you're full of it, you're something, you know, uh, respectful, yes, we should disagree. You know, we don't own the truth, and it's always a work in progress to figure out what's true and changing, and that's the essence of my teaching. Yeah. You know, and particularly, and by the way, I studied engineering as an undergraduate. I think that's even true in what's called the hard sciences or the STEM. I mean, there's a lot to debate about and argue about in, in, in physics and chemistry, and that's how you get the breakthroughs. The most interesting people I found in graduate school were the uh, mathematicians. Uh, and uh, I found the mathematicians were very philosophical. So were the physicists, you know, uh, interested in big ideas. And, uh, you know, and uh, when I got involved with nuclear weapons and wrote a book about all that, I enjoyed spending a lot of time with, with the physicists, particularly even the ones who would design those weapons. Very well-educated, very open, you know, and somebody like Hans Bethe, who won the Nobel Prize, I spent time with him, and it was fascinating so I, I yes, it's a long-winded answer. I'm happy that you didn't interrupt me, but that's uh, I know you have the capacity because you're a student of mine and you are not shy. So go ahead and interrupt. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, I think you touched about it in your previous answer too. But uh, you said you were born in 1936, and yeah. I think your your birthday was a little earlier this month. So happy late birthday! Like you've been you've been teaching at Annenberg for for a very long time. Um, you've had a, a legendary career as a journalist. You you still run. Um, uh, I am always uh, to my death. I'll be a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> no, because what does it mean to be a journalist? It means to care about the world. It means to be inquisitive. Hopefully, it means to have your listening ears open. Hopefully, you're learning all the time. You know, I just had a discussion with someone who works here in the dean's office when I went up to get my coffee. And we were talking about, uh, you know, Jewish religion. It came up because there was a piece of bread that I thought looked like challah. It turned out to be some <laughs> Greek loaf that they eat around Easter, and there's eggs on it, and it was interesting. But we ended up talking about, you know, the, the prayer that's said in the Jewish religion of, thank God I'm not a woman. And is this negative about women, which I always thought it was, or is it saying women are so important that it's a burden you don't want to have? And the two of us up there in the faculty room agreed, no, it was derogatory towards women, and let's not sugarcoat it. But, you know, you learn. I learn from my students right now. In my Essex class, half of the students are from China. My goodness, I've learned much more from, from my students about China, for example, which is I used to be in the Center for Chinese Studies. I was in China during the Cultural Revolution. I know a lot about China. My language skills, uh, never very substantial, are just about gone. But I have learned more, much more from the, my students who are from China than from all of the reading that I've done in the media and everything else. There's a reality to it. How does the healthcare system work? How, what are the worker sides to get on the internet? And what, are the, and what kind of dissent is permissible? How does social networking uh, extend in China? So, you know, uh, to, to say you're committed to journalism is really committed to learning, to thinking, to challenging. That's, after all, what journalism is supposed to be about. 
Yeah. What keeps you going? Well, I enjoy dialogue. I enjoy learning. And, uh, you know, uh, look, I, I don't keep going, as I say, barroom conversation. Like right now, if someone hasn't thought about the Ukraine, if someone has just bought the official propaganda of the U.S. government and we're saving the freedom fighters and there's no complexity and it has nothing to do with NATO expansion, it has nothing to do with rival nationalism and so forth, no, I'll walk away from the conversation. I'll say, hey, go read a book, so mm. learn something, you know. I'm not going to start from scratch. Now, if you're an undergraduate student and you bring something up, then I owe it to you to start from scratch because your high school has failed you, your college has failed you, so then I have to do some primary education, you know. But what keeps me going is basically I enjoy people. Uh, they usually don't disappoint me. I enjoy conversation, and I learn. That's my main point, though, you know, it's like, uh, I'm here at Annenberg. Uh, you know, I started out hardly making any money. Jeff Cowan had come here from Voice of America, and I had taken off over his class at UCLA when he went and took that job. And then he asked me if I wanted to be here, and I started out doing, you know, welfare watch, and I did it as a volunteer activity. How is the media covering so-called welfare reform? And then it's become a job, and, and but I'm here primarily because I enjoy it, and I learn. You know, Perfect. and I've learned from you. And you're not being the person now that you are in my class. <laughs> in my class, you are provocative, you're thoughtful, you're uh, in a healthy way aggressive. So why aren't you doing that now? Um, I you're think letting a- the medium, you know, the medium is the message. You're letting right. the medium intimidate you. No, I think I'm trying to... Um, and leave that in because it's instructive. That's what's <laughs> happening so far. Let's break that now. Okay. Become that wise guy in the class. <laughs> No, because I, I think it's different. I think because now in the class, it was more of a difference of, of opinions and like what we what we know about history and our thoughts on that. But now it's like, I want to listen to you. I think that's the biggest difference here. But on that note, um, this is a question I've wanted to ask you for a very long time. And it's that, what does communications mean to you? And why, as a longtime journalist, did you choose to become a professor of communications and not one in journalism? Because the journalism faculty was afraid to hire me. And uh, they were good friends of mine, by the way. Murray Frumson was the chair of the department. Probably the person I knew here best outside of Jeff. And I, I you know, I'm not gonna. I, I never really even asked them uh, in any direct way. But it was very clear these were, you know, basically people whose career was over. They'd had very conventional careers. Now, I, part of my career is quite conventional. I was at the LA Times for 29 years. That's pretty conventional. And followed all the rules and got along quite well and got nominated for Pulitzer Prizes by the paper about 10 or 11 times and actually won one and they took it away from me. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I, and I've got my share of awards and everything. So I, I've, I've succeeded in, in conventional terms and been well paid and broken good stories. But generally, the, the, the faculty, first of all, I find the faculty here in calm to be far more interesting than in journalism. Ah. And I think journalism is taught too much as, a, a, I don't know what, a, a trade or something. I, I don't know that you should study. I'm first, I'll go further. I don't think you should study journalism as an undergraduate major. I think you need a general knowledge to be a good journalist. And, and that's the challenge in journalism. Basically, you're reporting on things that you're not a specialist, but you should be able to get up to speed pretty fast, and you should know how, and you should be excited about it. And you should have some 
general knowledge. You know, for instance, in my engineering, the science courses, the math, I happen to be better at science and math than I was at uh, English and social studies because I have a learning disability and I had to work around it. And then until computers came in, it was really going to be very difficult to be a writer. Uh, but with computers, I could deal with uh, my, my learning issues. But I was good at math and science, anything that you didn't have to write an essay. And when I came to write about nuclear weapons and arms control and everything, it, it was a great uh, source of strength for me because I wasn't intimidated by it. I could talk to Hans Bates, a Nobel Prize winner in physics, and uh, and we have a, a discussion. Obviously, he knew a thousand times more than I did yes. uh, about everything, but I wasn't intimidated. And I thought, okay, you said that, and I'll go look it up, and I'll think about it, and come back with another set of questions, whether it was Edward Teller or Hans Bates or any of these people. And that was true of the banking industry when I wrote about the housing collapse. I felt confident knowing, uh, you know, could figure out the, the math and everything and, you know, uh, how it all works. I'd studied a lot of economics. So basically, as a journalist, I have relied very heavily on my education. And while I didn't go for one of these terminal degrees because they took away my fellowship, I did spend, you know, I don't know, four years in graduate school, and I got a great education. <clears throat> my main education I got as an undergraduate, though, at City College, and it's the best school that anybody could ever imagine, and I love it to this day, and I try to help financially when I can, mm. and I believe in it, and it's the, you know, it was the city, uh, it was the college of poor people. We thought it was the Harvard of poor people, and we thought we were better than Harvard, mm. and we were. You know, and the school still is in terms of the composition of student body. And I went back and taught there for one summer, and I visit whenever I get a chance, and I love the place. Perfect. And what does communications mean to you? You know, there's nothing wrong with a, a communications department or school. In fact, it's a good thing because it's what sociology used to be, and that's why you had people like C. Wright Mills in, in sociology. It was a catch-all. You're talking about society. So you can collect a lot of interesting, maverick, uh, thoughtful, independent people and talk about, you know, uh, society. So that's what comm is now. Uh, generally, we are comm. Well, first of all, we have a very good comm school and and because we have very interesting faculty and we attract good students. Yeah. Uh, I really believe that. Uh, I, I love the students here. And I'm not just saying that, you know, uh, first of all, I don't say anything to when you get to be 86, you don't give a damn. You can say whatever you think. But I think I was like that when I was 19. But, you know, the fact of the matter is uh, we deal with the important issues. And right now, in terms of the future of democracy, uh, war and peace, uh, sensible governance, uh, gender relations, and you take any single issue, how we deliver healthcare information, anything, you know, how we do science, right, the impact of technology, the best place to study about all of that is in a, a communication school. This is where it all meets. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't learn all the other stuff, you know, uh, you know, how do you do computer programming? What is an algorithm? How, you know, what, what what are they learning over in that school? What are they learning in the law school, the business school? But I think we're uh, calm, uh, much freer than journalism. Uh, and first of all, a lot of journalism is now PR, which is anti-journalism. Yes. As far as I'm concerned, you know, I mean, they're good, nice people. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, what is an and, and honest PR person, if that's not an oxymoron, <laughs> uh, an honest PR person can be very helpful when you're writing stories, you know, just 
you know, uh, don't bullshit a bullshitter, I guess is the way to put it. You know, uh, but the fact of the matter is PR, advertising, all of these things are anti-journalism in the sense that journalism should be about an unfettered search for the truth of any matter and in as profound a way as you can manage. And uh, so I like to calm school because, you know, uh, I'm not going to put down my, I, I actually have a good friend. So, and we have very strong journals with school. Yes. People like Sandy Tolan, I mean, they're the top in the, in the world, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm not ignoring other people. We had Richard Reeves here. You know, we have had great uh, journalism people, so I'm not putting them down as individuals. But what I, what I am saying is that I find in the comm school here, we can uh, broaden the discussion. And it's less of a temptation to think of it as a, a, a trade school or a craft. Or, I mean, it, it is an art form, but Stacy Smith does in evaluating Hollywood. That's great journalism. Right. You know, and why aren't women and minorities represented more? And what are the pressures? She is doing, uh, you know, very strong academic work, but clearly this is great journalism. And, and she's yes. not alone. You know, we have, we have, but the, we have, look, I'm, I'm a big fan of Annenberg, or I wouldn't be here, you know. And in fact, I was at UCLA and UCI before. And my own prejudice would be to be hostile to a private school. I yes. believe in public education, and I, you know, believe in people having access to that education based on some kind of, you know, hard work and study, but still access. And I, I don't think, uh, I don't, but I've gone a long way from thinking of this as the University of Spoiled Children. <laughs> uh, I really have a long way. I mean, for example, some of my best students are the children of wealthy parents and privilege. But they've struggled against it. They struggle with its limitations. Uh, I never thought I would be a big fan of sororities as a place to live when you go to college. But I would say, less so with the fraternities, but I've had some very good students from fraternities. I would say as a group, people in sororities probably have been uh, my hardest working students very often. No, I don't know the whole mass of people in sororities. Maybe I only get the best motivated. And I've spoken, you know, I've attended some of these scholarship nights at fraternities and sororities. But certainly any prejudice I had about that has gone. And uh, I, I find, look, maybe I just attract very good students because, you know, uh, although my 210 class, the combined journal, they say it's combined journalism and comm, but uh, the journalism department doesn't give people <laughs> credit for it. They want you to take their class, but that's a whole other subject. But I have a lot of journalists, but I would say I, I just really like our students. Uh, now, again, maybe I'm attracting a subset. I don't know. But I have, you know, I've had thousands of them right now. And they're good students. They're sharp. And you know what the problem is? They're jaded a bit. So, And they're jaded by the SATs. They're, you know, they have this idea education has to be anxiety-driven. It has to, you know, it has to be a, sort of a nightmare. So I want education to be fun. And I also feel the kind of stuff I, I teach should be accessible to anybody. Yes. You know, we're talking about social media. We're talking about your role as a citizen. We're talking about growing up in American culture. This should, you should know, uh, certainly from an age point of view, more than I do about what's going on in your world, you know, and, and I learn about it. So my feeling is 
if I can't get you to have good grades legitimately, not to give it away, uh, you know, but if I can't do that, particularly in my smaller class, my S class, I'm failing. I haven't made it interesting enough. I haven't given you ways to write about what you know about. And I, I really, not everybody succeeds, and I've had to fail students. I've had to give lower grades. But generally, I take it personally if they don't do well. I think I have failed somehow to inspire them. You know, now I know sometimes people, you know, hey, they're having problems in their life or they just don't care or, you know. So a lot of stereotypes have crumbled for me here being at USC. And, and by the way, something I say in class, and I know I keep talking because you don't interrupt me. <laughs> you know, by the way, if you really want to be a journalist, yes, you're going to have to figure out a polite way to interrupt somebody, even my, uh, when, if they're saying something interesting, if mm -hmm. they're going on. Now, we, I'm willing to sit here with you for hours. <laughs> so there isn't the time pressure. Okay. Often there is. You yes. know, you're talking to some politician, he's going to give you 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, I just want to say it's been a very good education for me. And I've been pleasantly surprised uh, that any negative thought I had about USC has dissolved, as far as the students. Okay. I think our administration has made big mistakes. I think we went for the big money. I think compromises were done. I'm not absolving them. We seem to have a better administration now. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there was an awful lot of emphasis on getting a lot of money and building a lot of buildings. And I don't believe in the gentrification of our shopping area right. here. I, I don't believe in turning SC into a gated community. Uh, I think there's, I don't believe that daily crime reports should be the way we know about black and brown people around here. I think that's, you know, borders on the criminal. It's obscene. The main, you know, our best thing about SC is our location in the middle of a city. Yes. The worst thing about SC is turning it into a gated location and where the enemy is everyone outside who's not an SC person. Right. And we have this huge police department and so forth. I think it's horrible. If I could, yes. Okay, perfect. Um, so one other, another interesting question that I had for you was, so you ran, um, you ran for Congress during the Viet, during the heyday of the Vietnam War with a very anti-Vietnam War stance. And that was very interesting to me because something we learned constantly in your class is the government cover-up, especially of, you know, shameful events like the Vietnam War. So with such the, the secretive nature of the government surrounding the Vietnam War and the American involvement in the Vietnam War, what persuaded you when, because you did mention that you visited Vietnam, what persuaded you when you visited that the war was a sham? Well, I'm glad you connected to because I, I actually, I really wasn't that interested in running for Congress. What happened is there was a group of people in the community. I was editing a magazine called Ramparts Magazine. Yes. And both before I got involved with Ramparts and then after I became the managing editor and then the editor, uh, I had gone to Vietnam, and what happened was, well, see, again, I'm going to give you a long story, and you're not going to get to ask your questions, but, but you know, what happened was I was sort of still somewhat in graduate school, but I was working over at City Lights Books because I didn't have any financing from graduate school, and uh, I opened some magazines that were from France and from England. I remember a particular Nouvelle Observateur, and I, we would get Le Monde and so forth, and I uh, was reading about, you know, the French saying, hey, we've been there and this was ridiculous. And what are the Americans doing? And so I got very interested and it happened that Ma Madame New came to San Francisco. She was Nodin Jim's daughter, uh, sister-in-law, and uh, her husband was the head of secret police and everything in Vietnam. 
And so uh, by then I knew enough. I organized or helped organize a demonstration against her. I've always had an activist inclination. And, but I was really interested. I went over to the Berkeley Library. We had a, a good library and reading about Vietnam and so forth. And then I came across an important story of uh, U.S. lying and, and that uh, somehow this fiction that there was an independent South Vietnam that uh, we now were supporting to protect them against North Vietnam was all a, a huge lie. There you know, been a civil war in Vietnam. The main heroes in Vietnam had been the people we call communists. They were communists under Ho Chi Minh of a different kind than Chinese or Russian, as we now know, because they're still communists and they're fighting communist China over some islands, you know, and everything else. They don't get along at all. And the U.S. supports communist Vietnam against communist China right now and would like Apple to move to communist Vietnam. So the whole thing was nuts to begin with. Communism turned out to be, what you knew it then was very nationalistic as it is in China, as it was in Russia, and not international at the, you know, and, and so forth. So anyway, I could figure all this out and then I realized that Nodin Yemo was the George Washington we proclaimed of South Vietnam was a puppet of the United States. We found him in a seminary in, in uh, New, New Jersey, New York, and uh, put him over there in Portland Powell. And I found these documents in the Berkeley Library that showed how we trained the Seagra police there, including in torture and everything. This is before I ever went there. So I said, well, I got to go, and I got to investigate all this. And then I got somebody who, Paul Krasner, who died, uh, I guess, last year, great guy, a comedian, journalist, a speaker, gave me a... I don't know what, $1,300, $1,400 check to get a ticket to Vietnam. I think it was a round trip ticket. Yeah. And uh, I went. And I went a bunch of times and didn't stop going. I ended up at some point going to North Vietnam as well. I spent a lot of time in Cambodia and Laos and uh, came back and con continued writing about it. And then at Ramparts, we did a lot of coverage of it. We kind of were one of the major public. Anyway, and then these was, guys yeah. in the district, uh, it was a doctor, Simon was his name, and a bunch of professors, mostly from biology and math and so forth, decided they wanted to challenge the incumbent on the war because he wouldn't come out. He was a liberal guy, Cohalen, but he, Jeffrey Cohalen, but he wouldn't come out against the war. So they asked me to run, and the whole plan was I would scare him by getting all these young people uh Vote, and then I would drop out when he came out against the war, but he never came out against mm. the war. So I, I had to keep running, and I came, you know, surprisingly close. close to uh, uh, seating him. So, and then Ron Dillums, uh, they wanted me to do it again, and I said no. I'm running a magazine, and I hate this. I don't like being a politician. Giving I could interrupt speech. so <laughs> as politely as possible. If we could cut in a little bit there. Um, I apologize for the, in advance for this rough question, but. Uh, one thing that completely blew my mind was that when you were the editor of Ramparts, Martin Luther King picked up an edition of Ramparts when he was at an airport and he read a Ramparts article that, you know, revealed the sham of the Vietnam War and that's what persuaded him to come out against it. Well, it wasn't a sham. It showed and something very similar to the criticism of Russia now and the Ukraine. It showed the barbarism of the war, right. and it showed something we should have known about war to begin with, uh, but we certainly should know that the, America is not immune to the deliberate killing of civilians, right? because right. we did it in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we did it in the bombing of with conventional bombs in, in Japan, we destroyed 
Tokyo in one night, you know. Uh, so uh, that war is a war against civilians. Of course it is. And um, so what our issue on, on, on Vietnam was, was we dared to show the pictures of kids in, in Vietnam who had been damaged by, uh, you know, severely, horribly, by napalm yes, and manufactured in the yeah. U.S. and dropped by U.S. planes. Right. And that's what Martin Luther King saw. And he said mm-hmm. to the person he was having breakfast that, after he pushed away his food and he said, "Look, after looking at that, I I, I have to speak out. I'm not going to have any appetite for some time." And right. he did. He spoke out at Riverside Church, and and then the New York Times attacked him for it. You know, here at, at Annenberg, and they everybody talks about the great media we had, and now the internet messes up media. I don't buy that for a second. I think the internet has freed media right. and been a great challenge to its arrogance. And there was the August New York Times, which you know, by the way lied us into the Iraq war too they you know but but they accepted all the lying about Vietnam and then they denounced Martin Luther King get in your lane Martin right but on that note on that note um so yeah and that that article that he read in Ramparts about the barbarism of American involvement in the Vietnam war was what got him to speak out against the administration which you said in class had uh, the the president the uh, presidential administration at the time that the Democratic had. administration, right. Lyndon Johnson. Right. Uh, somebody I got to know quite well, Bobby Kennedy, was the attorney general that went after Martin Luther King. Right. Let's just put that out there. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, they had previously supported him and offered protection in some ways, but they had began to withdraw their support. So I was wondering. They opened the gate to let the FBI drive King to suicide. That was their goal, to get him dead. Right. And, and that's a, a matter of record, well documented. Right. So I was wondering if you, and then he was. He how was, many students, uh, how many faculty on this campus when we have Martin Luther King Day and we talk about our great sensitivity to the civil rights movement ever mention that our government and under a Democrat, not under Donald Trump, under a Democratic president who we celebrate for all sorts of and sometimes good reasons, uh, went out, unleashed the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover. Yes. To, to blackmail King, to get him to kill himself, to destroy this great civil rights leader that we now honor mm-hmm. on, a, on one day of the year. Right. So so that question was, since, um, I should have thought of this better, but it was like, since you were the editor of Ramparts at that time, and he read that article in Ramparts that got him to speak out against the Vietnam Jeffrey, War. Jeffrey, you're going to have to make me one promise. Yes. You're going to... Make this available in its entirety. A hundred percent. Promise me that. I promise. Okay. I promise. I'll talk to you Schur. as long as you want. Okay. Okay. I promise. But yeah, so it's you were the editor at the time, and that was the article that got him to speak out against the Vietnam War, which caused the Democratic uh, presidential administration. The, I, I don't want to say it was the only thing. It was a vivid demonstration of what the bombing was doing. Yes. He was troubled about the war. First of all, he was a believer in Gandhi and nonviolence. And as he said in his speech, how can he go into the ghetto and tell, you know, black kids uh, uh, to favor nonviolence, you know, when violence was being used against them by a pretty aggressive police forces, uh, when your my government is, this is the words he used, the major purveyor of violence in the world today. Now, he didn't get that from Ramparts and he didn't get it from me. Yes. I knew Martin Luther King. I worked a bit with him. I respected him enormously, but he didn't need me to educate him about the cruelty of that war. Yes, we did have a photo uh, display of just what it does, and it did influence him. But no, he, he he spoke out against the war years earlier, and they threatened him, and they 
threatened him with blackmail. Yes. That's what this was all about, to shut him up. And then finally he said, I, I can't. And right. He, and the, with the, great courage, he knew what he was up against. He knew they would try to destroy him. I see. That's what it was, was cancel culture with a vengeance. Yeah. Because they got the power of the FBI, you know? Yes. So my rough question was, <laughs> yeah. um, um, because like him reading that article and renouncing the war caused the president to kind of withdraw a bit of the protection for him. Was there ever, was there like a part of you that was like, in some way, the article or like the the magazine that I edited may have been in some part led to the withdrawal of his, of his protection and his, you know, eventual, you know, assassination. You're asking me, did I kill Martin? No, Luther King? no, but like I was, I sorry, I should. <laughs> that's that's a, the rough that's question. A, that's a pretty rough question. No. Did I kill Martin Luther King? No, I loved Martin Luther King, and I actually, as I say, knew him. And respected him, and and uh, but I get your question. Uh, look, if you're a journalist, at some point the chips are going to fall where they fall. You know that's the burden of revealing truth. You know, uh, and then what are you going to do? You know, you know, uh, uh, you're not God. You're not. You know, you're not rearranging the universe. And and your your task is really to reveal. Well, people have a right to know. I'm, I'm not interested in gossip journalism. I'm not, and this is my objection to what they did for King. They went after his personal life. First, they tried to brand them as a communist. That didn't work too well. And then they were going to show him, you know, the involvement with women or what have you, you know. And it was all low level stuff. And and uh, you know, I'm not interested in. Oh, we go after any truth, no matter how petty, no matter how you know, slimy, no matter how undocumented, whatever. Um, that's not my journalism. I think you, the standard is if it's important and if the public has a right to know and you can show that there's a need to know, uh, and, and then that's the high calling of journalism. And not because you're going to get eyeballs or sell papers. I never was motivated by that. I'm not motivated by that now. I have an, I'm an internet journalist and uh, so forth, but I don't go, I know there's a, a lot of stories I can put on my site and get more traffic. We've won a lot of prizes with yes. Truth Dig, and now I have Sheer Post, you know, uh, which I've done during the pandemic, and I think it's a very good publication. I'm very proud of it, but we don't go for ratings or numbers or clicks or, you know, crap like that. You gotcha. Know? Think of but but about that. guilt, about guilt. I have a lot of guilt. Uh, I have a guilt. For instance, Ron Kovic, who comes and speaks in my class every single term. You've heard him. Yeah. Three quarters of his body's parallel. I love this guy. I, I, you know, we met in a, a graveyard, a veteran's graveyard on, in, in uh, uh, west side of L.A., you know, uh, 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 1970. That's a long time ago, you know, half a century ago. And, uh, you know, I, we've been friends ever since. He's spoken in every single class I've had here, I think, just about every class, unless he's been back in the hospital and not able to do it. You know, do I feel guilt? I feel guilt that, that he got hit, wounded in Vietnam after I was writing about it, mm. after I had gone there, okay? Uh, and so, therefore, I think, why didn't I write better? Why didn't I do a more effective job? Why didn't I reach more people? Yeah, I have guilt about that. I see. You know, I have guilt uh, right now. You know, I think what's happening around the U.S. now going to spend, uh, you know, what, $30 billion on 
arms for, I mean, it was incredible. I just read this story today. You know, for the Ukraine, we're going to turn that into another Vietnam right. and, you know, get everybody killed. And that, uh, that I'm not speaking out louder about it, that I'm not doing more about it. Yeah, I feel guilt about that. Gotcha. So, and also, by the way, let me just be clear. I've gotten things wrong, you know. I might have gotten something wrong. I mean, I published Chris Hedges this week, and he called for a boycott of the Berkeley uh, Book Festival because they canceled an appearance by Alice Walker and you know, and, uh, her association with uh, a right-wing, uh, racist, anti-Semitic ideologue uh, to some degree. Okay, we can argue about the degree, you know. Uh, and I published it, and people have attacked me for it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. I think I was right. I certainly think I was right to publish a writer I have a lot of respect for. You know, I, I, I'm not going to cut that out. But, you know, there are issues, and I don't always get them right, uh, you know. And so you have to be prepared to change your view or you know, so forth. That leads perfectly into my next question because uh, in like in my mind, I, I saw you were, you, I felt that you were on top of many subjects. Like you opposed the Vietnam War and then you opposed the, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. So my question was, uh, do you have a view in the past that you wrote that you regret writing now? <laughs> do I have, uh, that's a good question and that is a showstopper. You mean, did I write something that I regret that yes. I, I can recall? You know, uh, I don't lose sleep over anyone that particularly comes to mind. I don't. I think, I, you know, so this is going to sound a little bit petty. Uh, I once, I uh, can't even remember her name now, but she was on Good Morning America. So was I, by the way, but not as prominent, the ABC variant of the Today Show. And Joan London, and I wrote a whole thing about, this is actually before I came to work here, about what was happening in the television industry. It's how I got to know Norman Lear and Jeff Cowan, who was a lawyer working with Norman Lear then. And I kind of described her a bit as a, I didn't use the word bimbo, but it fit a stereotype because she was hired knowing nothing and, and so forth. I should have been kinder to her and I should have recognized however she was hired she also did learn on the job, and she did become a better journalist. And so I didn't, yes, there was something, I wouldn't say misogynist, there was something uh, wrong about that, wrong about that. Uh, typing her, you know, yes, they were hiring uh, attractive women, you know, first to be weather girls, and then to be journalists, and that's what she was on Good Morning America. But the fact is, she rose from that. She transcended that. She didn't invent that. And I felt really shitty afterwards. However, I lost my job. She didn't lose hers. <laughs> I got pushed out of Good Morning America. I was there quite regularly, you know, almost, I think every week they were flying me because you didn't have satellites in those days from California to New York. They were paying me, putting me up in a nice hotel, and I'd blabble for 15 minutes and then look around New York, my hometown, and then come home. It was nice. And so, they, yeah, they fired me. The producer of the show was her um, significant other. And uh, they also didn't like having their one of their stars criticized in a newspaper article. But I do feel there was something petty about it. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I can't think of too many. I mean, I can't. 
Do you know any of any that I should? I mean, you've read my stuff. You hear me talking. <laughs> that was why, because I couldn't, I couldn't really think of any. That's why I asked the question. Uh, let me just say something, by yeah. the way. It's not because I'm so moral or so brilliant or anything. I, I work my ass off. Right. That's that's why I think you put the work I, I, in and made sure I, I like what you were writing. But, but is I'm correct. also very insecure about. First of all, I had a learning disability. So if my wife or somebody hasn't, usually my wife of forty five years now, who was also the associate editor of the LA yes. Times, outranked me, was a vice president. Well, she has to approve everything I send out for grammar, and then she'll challenge all my ideas and everything. And has done that. And before her, there were other people, my sons and everything else, I mean, or friends or whatever I would show things to. So I was always very insecure about my writing and would check with people and what do you make of this and so forth and I've been always been very open to editors you know so I, I have a great reservoir of insecurity about certainly about my writing and you know and even uh, every other aspect you know uh, of myself and and uh, certainly seek out well even with students like you you came up to me once and said some things as I recall and I took them to heart and uh, no, I mean I'm not I'm, I'm I'm not impervious to criticism. Gotcha. gotcha. You know. Yes. Okay. So. But but it's funny you're putting me on the spot. Is there? Look, I've done dumb things. I was at a journalist conference with uh, Halberstam was there, I believe. Richard Reeves was there, and all that. And I was challenging what I thought was this very pompous celebration that they were had. And I say, hey, let's cut to the chase. If the story is important enough, you would lie, steal, cheat, or whatever to get the information. Let's not kid ourselves. Well, there was an element of truth to that. You know, if journalism is an aggressive business. I shouldn't have uttered that. I shouldn't even thought that. There should still be moral restraint in what you do. It caused me a lot of trouble. When I, at the, I was already working at the LA Times. I had to go speak to our editor and publisher, explain what I meant at this public forum, and I thought I was being honest about it, you know, uh, and I was referring to, for instance, journalists learned how to read upside down because if there was somebody on the desk in front of a person, they could see what he was reading. I mean, you know, we, we're very aggressive. It's a very aggressive craft, you know, and sometimes you, you do bend rules. Yeah, you know, I uh, I entered, you know, I, I gave some examples of it. I you know, stayed longer than I was supposed to in some offices and made copies of things and, and everything. And so, yes, and that was a kind of a crude way of expressing it. And, uh, you know, and I've, I've done things like like that. But I can't think of anything that I really got wrong in a big, on, on anything. I mean, just, just, you know, but if you want to and you find it, We'll do another show. I'll let you know. Yeah. I'll yeah, let you know. Yeah. Okay. So final question. Uh, Why final? I'm starting to get revved up here. <laughs> you know? Okay. Go ahead. Um, so you've had a legendary journalist career. You've interviewed multiple presidents. So my question- I interviewed to you, them before they were president. Right. The only one I interviewed after- Was Well, Nixon. no, I mean, I've talked to some. I've talked to obviously, well, not obviously, but I've talked to Bill Clinton quite a bit since he's been president. I've run into him and I- you know, talked to, I guess, the first President Bush after, certainly Ronald Reagan, I saw after he was president. Mm -hmm. uh, my big interviews with all of them were when they were running for president before. Yes. Uh, but Nixon is the one yes. that I spent all of my time with, well, I spent my time with him was 
after he was president. You should ask me about that because we could do another show. But what I learned about all these presidents, yes. uh, uh, you know, maybe we should do a separate show on it. But go ahead. Okay. If you could interview one person, alive or dead, who would it be? Well, first of all, I, you should ask. Well, you should, I should stop telling you what you should do. Uh, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take the advice. Well, no, I mean, I, I, they all were interesting, but they they weren't necessarily the press. Bertrand Russell, somebody I interviewed, was fascinating for me just to be in his presence because maybe he was the smartest person I ever encountered, and he was ninety four, but enough was there that I could see it. I mean, I've I've, I've interviewed a lot of people, some of them not famous, that have been very impressive. Uh, I, I thought the interview with Nixon was not a long one. It was done at his suggestion, by the way. It's yes. not a bad story to tell. Uh, but I, this goes to what I might get. To, okay, let's, let's revive a very good question. You okay. Asked. What have I gotten wrong? Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe I got Richard Nixon wrong. And, and uh, you know, I was, first of all, I had subjective hostility to the man. My taxes were all, Right, he tried all, to get you arrested, so I wouldn't blame you had, for you having know, hostility was, to I, him. Yeah, they tried to prove that I was an enemy agent when he was president. I'm not saying how personally he was involved, but he certainly, you know, uh, uh, CIA, the FBI, I mean, I was targeted. And it's not fun to read my files uh, uh, and what they, you know— People really were have to get you, to destroy you, uh, and I mean, really, it was kind of creepy, you know. And and but I would say with Nixon, I certainly, while he was president, stressed the negative. Not always, by the way. I wrote a, a very good essay. Uh, I've always been able to understand Republicans better than most of my friends and give them some credit. You know, try to be objective. And so forth. I know I did it with Reagan, and I know he appreciated it. That's why when he was running for president, you know, I had interviewed Reagan before he was governor, <laughs> and 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 uh, when I was in, and I you know, I knew him when he was governor, and he, I was one of the people he tear gassed in Berkeley, <laughs> you know, when he was governor, and uh, and so forth. Uh, but um, you know, uh, after he was when he was you know kicked out of office and so forth. I had uh, an idea that there were that he was a complex figure, and his ideas were complex, and he was not a radical, and nor did I think he was the most dangerous uh, president. I mean, there's a lot of stereotypes about people. Nor did I think Trump was as dangerous as most of my, or is, but he's still around, as dangerous, dangerous, all right, but any president's potentially dangerous, and they all have their failings. But right now. What the hell is Joe Biden doing with the Ukraine? Why does he want, you know, I mean, you, you, you're up against a, an opponent that does have a nuclear arsenal. Yes. I just did a whole long interview with Daniel Ellsberg, who was really quite expert on all this. It's very frightening. Why are you trying to push these people into the corner? So right now, I'd have to say, Joe Biden, from my point of view right now, one of the most dangerous presidents we've ever had. Now, whether he's all there or not, I don't know, you know, uh, but, but uh, what am I, giving him the benefit of doubt to say he's uh, not all there? I don't want to do that. Uh, I mean, I have no evidence. So it's, it's bizarre. I mean, you want, where, where's the desire to negotiate, to settle this? Uh, no, let's throw more troops, more weapons, let's, you know, more Ukrainian troops. Yeah, we aren't yet sending Western American troops, but no, I find this a very, very dangerous moment and uh, so joe biden who 
my wife tricked me into voting for, you know, uh, sort of put this paper in front of me. Oh, well, you got to sign here and sign here, and you're the next thing I knew. I voted for Joe Biden. You know, I don't want to get her in trouble. She's not allowed to do that. But, you know, the fact is, oh, yeah, you can't let Trump, you know. Okay, so I always seem to go along with the lesser evil argument, uh, kind of don't regret it sometimes. But, you know, with Nixon, um, you know, he did the opening to China. And he did it, not Kissinger. And, and I had gone back and looked at, you know, what he wrote in Foreign Affairs magazine before he was president about the need to negotiate with Mao and China and the room for negotiation. So the stereotype of Nixon as only the primitive anti-communist warmonger was not accurate, not accurate. And he had had that famous kitchen debate, you know, Khrushchev and so forth. So, you know, I wrote a retrospective. And nobody liked that retrospective I did for uh, for the L.A. Times on Richard Nixon, except Richard Nixon. <laughs> really, it's a, an amazing to My mother was living with me then. She's an old woman. You know, her eyesight was not good. You know, she had Parkinson's. She read my article. It took about two hours to read this long article in the L.A. Times. And then she finished. I said, hey, Ma, Ma what do you think? And I respected my mother enormously. And my mother looked up at me, her glasses down by her lower part of her nose, looked at me and said, he needs you. <laughs> that was her reaction. I was crushed. Yeah, Nixon does need me. Nixon does need me, just like anybody else I'm going to write about, to try to get it straight, to try to figure it out. So I got angry with my mother. I said, yeah, he does need me. You know, uh, And believe it or not, Nixon has been maligned to some degree. It was a horrible things he did. I'm not going to, the bombing of Cambodia, a country I loved and spent a lot of time in, uh, the, the genocidal bombing of Cambodia, yeah, one of the great war crimes of human history. I'm not denying that. But the fact is, he was not our worst president. And there's a record to try to get straight. So the only positive response I got to that article, believe it or not, is a long article I wrote in the L.A. Times and carried in a number of other newspapers I don't think anybody at the LA Times congratulated me on it. I don't. I don't think. I don't think I had a single friend who said something. They all didn't like it. Right. You know, I didn't like it. And then I get a letter from Richard Nixon. You know, uh, I read your article. There are things I disagree, but I, you know, I printed that letter in my book, and I, and he said, and if you want to talk to me, I'm here. Wow. <laughs> I went back to New York to talk to him and, and his own advisors and people like that. You know, they, oh, what, what are you talking to Sheer for? You know, don't do that. You know, the same thing with that they told Reagan. Reagan did talk to me and Reagan wouldn't let his aides cut it off. And this was, I, I'd known Reagan for decades, you know, and uh, he said, no, he kept talking to me. And Nixon did the same and we had a very interesting exchange. And he said he agreed with my analysis of why he went to China and what it was all about and why he was a realist about foreign policy and so forth. And so there it was. Yeah. You know. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, Professor Shearer, is an well, honor. You know what? Let's, let's justify the successive uh, verbiage on my part. Uh, let's, let's do a part two. Okay. We'll commit to a part yes, two. Yes, we'll commit to a part two right And then you can right ask right your now. question about the presidents. Yes. Because that's a good one. Uh, uh, and I did get to observe these. You know, first of all, I, I was did a lot of reporting for the L.A. Times uh, on Washington. On, on, you know, I interviewed a lot of these candidates for the L.A. Times. So it's much more in a framework of conventional journalism. In fact, everyone I did except Carter 
was for the L.A. Times. Mm-hmm. So I think that would make a good part two. That would be, yeah. Let's yeah. commit to a part two right here. Yeah. Um, I know I did promise that I wouldn't cut anything up. My, my producer may want me to cut out the part where you talked about Joe Biden being a dangerous man. Why? Um, no, you, can't, you have no right to. <laughs> okay. No, you, how, oh, are you kidding me? I'll sue you. How, can you, how dare you? Why? Uh, no. I, what? what? Uh, because politically, he thinks it's I, wrong? Maybe. Uh, yeah. No, no that's that, a considered opinion. That, okay. That, that, that's not just some kind of wild rhetoric, and I, I don't drink. I haven't had a drink in 25 years. So, no, no, that, that's Okay, garbage. I'll fight to keep it in. Okay. No. But it was, it was an honor. to try? If somebody wants to cut this out, that would be a violation of journalistic integrity. Okay, okay. I'll, um, okay, I'll fight to keep it in. It was an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much. Okay. You weren't lying when you said that this interview took many different directions and many that we didn't expect. But I think it's it's covered a lot, you know, in a sense that is very current, especially for student journalists. And I think it was really important to talk to him and kind of get his perspective as such like a seasoned journalist. Um, And yeah, overall, just like emphasizing how to always be curious um, to seek the truth. Yeah. He like covered a lot of like really important things that, you know, can really get lost in the industry, I think. Yeah, and I think it's really, really funny because you can see my progression as an interviewer throughout this interview. Uh, In the beginning, I was very... I didn't want to interrupt him. I just waited until he he finished talking, which is normal interviewer protocol, at least in my book. And then you can see midway through, he he switches into from interviewee into professor mode, and then he starts being like... Hey, you should you, in the real world when you're interviewing politicians and presidents, of which he has, um, and talked about extensively inside mm-hmm. that um, inside the interview. He was like, "You only have a limited amount of time, so you got to cut him off, or else I'll just keep talking." So you can kind of see him giving me a masterclass, really, in the art of interviewing as we go along, and then me finally at the end trying to cut him off and get him back on track, uh, of which I think I was half and half successful with, but. You know, it was it was such it was such an honor, nonetheless. One of the greatest things about Professor Shear, I think, is, you know, at though I think the older you get, and this is something uh, one of the radio coaches, Annen- radio coaches in the Annenberg Radio News program, told me after I told him that I had interviewed Professor Shear, is that as you get older, it becomes easier to be kind of stuck in the past. I think, like, kind of just. Uh, maybe focused on a certain period of time, being like, you know, back in the day, you know, this is what happened. But this is something that Professor Shear is not. I think clearly, as you can tell in the episode, Professor Shear is still very up to date mm-hmm. with current news. He has very strong opinions on the current state of politics, communications, and journalism today. Um, and he minces no words. He he's um, He doesn't have a filter, which is... Uh, which which made for a very, very interesting interview and a very great time. And, you know, it was just so fun to to sit with him and listen to what, we, what he had to say. And uh, we committed to a part two. We committed to a part two wow. after, after I read his book on interviewing presidents. So I'm very excited for that. Um, and we'll see how it goes. Absolutely. I think it's so interesting, too, to like interview journalists that have done so much and interviewed like larger than life figures because it can be so hard to... Like imagine them in our shoes as they were learning, as they were still working um, and just kind of like working their way up because it just seems like they were always great. And I I really appreciate how he was talking about the process. 
um, that he has the book out about like this didn't happen overnight. Like this is how you do it. This is what I learned. And just even like you said, like teaching you as you were interviewing him, I think is really special and shows that he was probably like made to be an educator beyond being this great interviewer. Absolutely.